0: I'm David Stiepelman, one of the co-founders of Sixth Street, and uh, I'm here, I'm really happy to be here with Rick Welts. Rick, uh, whose bio is in your app, but I think that uh, uh, it doesn't even do it justice, uh, has been called one of the most successful and lauded business executives in professional sports and one of the most admired people in the country for his leadership in society broadly. It's pretty good. Incredible career as a sports executive associated with seven championship teams um, in the NBA, the WNBA and the G League, including three titles at Golden State. In your 17 year career at the NBA um, uh, league office, you did basically everything there. You ran, I think practically every business at the NBA. Becoming number three in the organization, you're the person who's invented All-Star Weekend, spearheaded the dream team, we'll talk about that I hope. Um, and help get the NBA going, uh, sorry, the WNBA going. You were the President and COO of the Phoenix Suns. You were the President and COO of the Golden State Warriors, tip off tonight against the Lakers at 7 Pacific. And in 2018, you were elected to the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame, Basketball Hall of Fame, a rare distinction for a business side executive, which is incredible. Are you wearing the ring? You are. Excellent. And now, Climbing even higher peaks, you're a senior advisor at Sixth Street, which we're very grateful for. And I've just joined the board of our NWSL professional women's soccer team, which we're thrilled about. Thank you for being here, welcome.
1: Thank you, David.
0: I'd like to start with a non-denominational benediction to luck. And so I'd, I'd love you to tell everybody who Earl Woodson is.
1: So uh, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Uh, before any of you were born. Uh, and uh, my kind of currency of a relationship with my dad was going to games. I, uh, we loved going to games together. That's where we talked, that's where we had our big conversations, and uh, I loved it. Uh, and then in 1967, the NBA awarded an expansion franchise to the Seattle Supersonics. And we started going to Sonics games in Seattle. I fell in love with the sport right away, but there was something more going on there that became kind of my direction, I think, in my career. But I was going to Queen Anne High School. The coolest kid at Queen Anne High School was?
0: Earl Woodson.
1: Why was Earl the coolest kid at Queen Anne High School? Because he was a ball boy for the Seattle Supersonics, all right? So we'd sit in the back of English Lit class uh, every day and I'd get the gossip about my favorite players, my favorite teams, it was like awesome. So Earl comes in, to class one day, very long look on his face. I'm like, dude, what's wrong? I goes, oh man, like my family's moving out of town. Trying to appear very upset. <laughs> Earl, I'm like, dude, you got to take me down and introduce me to whoever hires ball kids at the Sonics. And he did that. And uh, so at 16, I had my dream job and really the one, you know, the thing
0: that changed my life more than anything else. And you stuck around there for a while. You working there through college. Um, I, I didn't realize this, or I didn't put this together when I was reading up about you, that the most incredible, one of the most incredible people maybe ever in the world, Bill Russell, who became your friend, was the coach and general manager of the Supersonics sometime in the mid-70s. You're, you're, did, how, did, how, did, how did that relationship form? And I'm thinking about all the young people in the room or people who just started here. How did you get yourself noticed, or what did he see in you, do you think?
1: Uh, so we had a very small business officer, more people at this front table than we had uh, working for the Sonics at the time. But Bill Russell was a very early riser. And I didn't have an—I was going to University of Washington working part-time. Uh, I had to work, you know, around my school schedule, so I would often be in really early in the morning, even on a weekend. And Bill, I'd hear these big footsteps coming up the stairs. And at the other end of the hallway, I didn't have a—, a uh, An office at a desk in the hallway. Uh, I'd see, you know, Bill Russell going into his office, and I, you know, I'm in awe. I would never speak to Bill Russell. Uh, 11 championships in 13 years with the Boston Celtics. Uh, And this would go on a lot. I'd be, you know, at my desk at seven in the morning, and he'd be, you know, at the other end of the hall going in. One, one day he like sticks his head out of the office and he goes, "Hey, uh, white boy down the hall." (laughs) <laughs> and for whatever reason I really can't tell you uh, that kind of started a friendship that lasted a long long time till his passing last August I got to speak at his memorial service last August but uh, um, I think he you know he saw something in me that I cherish forever it's a friendship that I could never have imagined or 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 never thought would have as a blessing in my life but uh, I don't know for sure he never really told me but but I will say every time we spoke till the day he died, he would answer the phone or address me as white boy down the hall <laughs> so quite an honor
0: you, you we were just talking outside you told me a story about um, kind of getting yourself noticed and how you got into the marketing department. Can you tell people that story?
1: I loved your open video today. I loved your open video today and the messages it sent to the young employees about how you get noticed at six street. I'm doing a, I'm doing a you know, video speech tomorrow for young employees of the G league. And I'm going to use some of the material there. Cause it's what I talk about all the time. It's like, you know, doing your job. Great is like the given, right? It's how do you find that opportunity that sets yourself apart and adds value where no one else saw the value before? And so I'm a, you know, 17-year-old ball kid for the Sonics, and I'm looking at our bench one night, and we have these, like, kind of metal, like, containers for the water behind the bench, not very attractive. So... I went in that weekend, I bought some spray paint at the hardware store. I spray painted them all green, like I stenciled the Sonic logo uh, on the cans. And the next game, we go out there and we got like these really kick-ass water containers <laughs> behind the bench. And the marketing guy, you know, came up to me like, where where'd we buy those? Like, yeah, well, guys, you know, I just kind of did it over the weekend. And a silly story... But I got offered a part-time job, you know, when my ball boy career was over. Got offered a part-time job in the marketing department, and part of it was just like they saw somebody who could look around the edges and maybe see something that wasn't being done.
0: Uh, I, lo- I love that story. L- 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 you went to the NBA in 1982. Not exactly what, it, what not exactly uh, what it's like now, like a, a global drug or not. Can like w- what was it like? Like why did you why did you do that? You had a, you, you had a great gig
1: because I was so naive. I thought I was in Seattle, Washington. We won a championship in 1979. The NBA was the biggest thing that ever happened. And I, but I knew it wasn't a career. So I had left and joined a little sports marketing company in Seattle. Um, None of you were old enough to remember before we had cell phones, uh, you had one main office number. You come back from uh, lunch and you'd see these little pink slips on your desk that said while you were out. I recognized the phone number, um, but I didn't know the. I didn't recognize the name. I called back. It was an NBA number, uh, and this guy on the other end of the phone said, "Hey, we're, I'm, I'm just been put in charge of starting a business operation at the NBA, and I'd like to meet you. I heard about you. So flew back. I got to fly back to New York. Stayed at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Oh my gosh, it was so exciting. <laughs> Walk over to uh, my meeting in the Olympic Tower where the NBA still is, and. My half-hour appointment with this guy went about two hours. And uh, I ended up going to work um, at the NBA as the first person. sounds crazy. 1982 as the first person ever to go out and try to talk to corporate partners about investing marketing dollars in the NBA. That function didn't exist. We scheduled games and assigned referees. Now, I thought this is going to be the best gig ever. I had the worst job in America, Okay. You have no idea what a damaged property the NBA was at that moment in time. Uh, First league with widespread accusations of drug use by its players. Uh, Talk about teams going out of business, not any talk about expanding the league. Sports Illustrated did a famous cover where they had a deflated NBA basketball on the cover with you know, the story inside, uh, offering the conventional wisdom that America would never embrace a sport where three quarters of the athletes were black, like duh, you know? So that was, that was what we were up against. I couldn't get a, I couldn't get a meeting. I couldn't get anyone to talk to me about, you know, spending money on the NBA. The, the biggest part of luck for me on that was that guy that recruited me was a guy by the name of David Stern. And, uh, Two years later, the owners would be smart enough to elect David Stern commissioner. which He served in that role for 30 years. Uh, but he had this band of crazy young warriors that were working for him that, Got to ride the train at that point, and uh, ended up spending 17 years there and every job imaginable, seeing the world, and it was a great career. But, but the NBA was in a terrible situation and needing needed a, a total reboot to be successful.
0: What was your pitch, and how did it evolve? Like when you're in your, in your trying to get corporate sponsors roll. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it was always the fourth in the category that would talk to me. You know, the the number one, two, and three would never even take a meeting for me. So, I think my first deal was with Fuji Film because I tried for, you know, a year to get Kodak to talk to me. I couldn't. But here, I mean, I think it's another example of trying to just you know find something new. Um, I was, I we were going. Stern had been elected commissioner. Um, in 83 he was going to take office after the all-star game in 1984 and he'd already said a couple of the themes that he wanted to get out there were getting in touch with our sport again we had no connection to our history our players our coaches we had no video record or photographic record of our history we had to that was our job we were the caretakers of the league and we were going to go to Denver for the All-Star Weekend. Those of you who are sports fans know that Denver had a, a very rich ABA, American Basketball Association, uh, history before they joined the NBA. And in 1976, one of the most famous events in the history of basketball, 1976 ABA Slam Dunk Contest, where this player named Julius Erving took off from the free throw line and dunked a basketball. No one ever seen it before, and he won the ABA Slam Dunk Contest. So Carl Shearer was the uh, president of the Denver Noggies, came to, uh, came to New York like three months before the All-Star game to start to talk about planning. it. now it takes like six years to plan an All-Star weekend. But three months before, he goes, hey, I think it'd be great if at halftime we did a slam dunk contest. We're in ABA city, it'd be great. And I'm like, oh, Carl, sorry. CBS has got this red on round ball thing that they run at halftime. We'll have to, we don't have halftime. I went home that night, turned on the TV. and As luck would have, a, there's a baseball old-timers game on TV. And I watched a 60-year-old guy get up and hit a home run over the Cracker Jack sign in right field. Like, okay, I think I got it. So went in the next morning in the Stern's office. said, like, what if we do a second day of events? We've only ever just show up for a game and everybody goes home. So we could do a, a slam dunk contest that kind of honors the heritage in denver and we could do an old timers game where you want to get back in touch with the history of the game and all these players it was and he was like i like it so i'm gonna go talk to the commissioner who was larry o'brien at the time stern came back like yeah no commissioner says last weekend in office yeah we're not gonna try this i don't know what happened came back a few days later okay commissioner says you can do it you have no budget you got to figure out how to pay for it And you can't embarrass him on his last week in office. So with that, it's like, here we go, right? So um, I actually had something to go out and talk to sponsors about. So there was this little uh, beverage company in Indianapolis called Gatorade. Uh, So I got to make the league's first deal with Gatorade to sponsor the slime dunk contest. It's actually the longest standing sponsorship the NBA has. Gatorade's still a sponsor of the NBA. Gillette wouldn't talk to me, but I got Schick to sponsor the old-timers game. I got American Airlines to pay the airfare. And we showed up at the Brown Palace Hotel. This is another one that falls in the luck category there's Jerry West, there's Oscar Robertson, you know, there, there are these amazing players that all of a sudden feel like part of the family again. And the writers and reporters are running around. They've got these great stories to write about, about the all-star weekend. So we get to McNichols arena, we sell it out, $5 a ticket. Um, and what happened was just a lot of luck, uh, that day. So I will tell you this, um, the, 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 introductions of the old timers thrilling you know here are these guys that we've watched forever the game it's better to watch 60 year old baseball players than 60 year old basketball players okay not so pretty okay we had to we had to have a seamstress in the locker room what to expand some of the waist sizes and some of the uh uniforms but then uh julia serving god bless him uh, agreed to come back at the very end of his career and do the slam dunk contest again. And the very last uh, matchup was Larry Nance, who was a rookie, um, against Julius Erving. And last dunk, Julius picked up the ball and did exactly what he'd done in the ABA contest. He walked the full length of the floor, came running down, took off probably at this stage of his career, this far inside the, the free throw line, but dunked the ball. The play, it went nuts, uh, but he didn't win. And it was a, it was a, it was a changing of the guard, both from a player perspective, and then that weekend, uh, O'Brien turned the commissionership over to Stern. Sports Illustrated gave us like six pages. They'd never covered the All Star Game before. Uh, Stern was viewed as like this new marketing genius. He's going to change the NBA off like on a rocket ship start. Uh, but it was, you know, it was another example of finding something we'd never done. Now, if you watched it this year, you may not be especially happy that I invented that, but, um, but, but it's been something that every league has adopted. Wait, why? And great. Well, it was kind of unwatchable. Though, oh, I, this see, year, right.
0: so I see. I apologize I see. for that. No, no, that's not, that's not your fault. That, uh, that, that's, that's, uh, the, 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 moral of the story is watch baseball, I think. Um, <laughs> exactly. I wanna, or yeah. women's soccer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or women's soccer. We'll get there. We're going to talk about that. Um, we talk a lot about culture here. Super important. Um, I think it's axiomatic. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about wh- why that. Why you think that is. But also, I'm interested. Let's talk about the culture of the NBA. What, from obviously way outside in, my understanding of David Stern. It's kind of an interesting mentor for you. What, what, what? how did how did that work? And 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 did it not work sometimes?
1: Yeah. Uh- I, I do say my greatest accomplishment was reporting to him for 17 years and living to tell about it because if you know his reputation, pretty volatile not sure his style would fly in 2023 on a few different levels but a passionate leader and, a, and just a genius leader as far uh, as I was concerned. And at that point he could know everybody in the company, right? We had 40 people and you know we could. I could have a bad day in his office in the afternoon where I left the building feeling like this is never going to work, and go home, and at 10 o'clock, my home phone, remember home telephones? My home phone would ring, and it was Uncle David, you know? And we'd sit there and talk for half an hour, and I was, by the time that conversation was ready, was over, I was ready to come in the next day and knock down walls for this guy and for this league. And he was a genius leader, that leadership had to evolve when you, you grow, Right, I'm sure you guys knew every employee differently then than sure. you do now. Right, you had to grow. So, um, but but it, you know, he had a different. He had the ability, the kind of Clinton-esque ability to treat, have a completely unique relationship with everyone. And screaming at me wasn't particularly effective. It didn't really bother me that much. It, like I kind of knew his act. Um, but he knew how to poke me in ways that just. Would kill me, right? And and know where my vulnerabilities were, and get me to, to do a lot better. What was the other part of the question? Uh, Culture. Well, no. So here's a great advantage that we had. Okay, in 1982, baseball's really successful. Football is obviously really successful. We're we're not even a competition. So and we don't have any employees. So we start hiring at that point and. You know, our employee base looked very different—still does, by the way—than baseball or footballs. So we had a lot more women in positions of responsibility. We had a lot more people of color in the organization. It much more kind of reflected our society at that time than it did uh, this long-standing institution of traditional success. I think it was a huge advantage. And Stern brought a huge social conscience to our organization. The idea that we had this amazing platform, and shame on us if we don't use it to try to improve our society or the communities in which our, our teams operate. So that those two things were really drivers for us. The, the value, we didn't know what DEI was, but the value of having a very diverse workforce making decisions about the future of our league and doing it with a social conscience—that that we had that screen, that we had the opportunity to do something beyond our business that that might make the world a little bit better.
0: I was going to ask this later, but I'll ask it now because you kind of brought it up. Social conscience—it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's something that your public, less our public, but maybe our employees and and certainly people who we deal with, want us to comment on things. What's your what's your framework for that? You you were asked to come in and talk. Um, to the NBA owners about playing the All-Star game in Charlotte in 2019 or something like that. They had passed uh, in North Carolina had passed a, an anti-LGBTQ statute and and I thought you had a very interesting framework for how you how you advise the the owners to think about that. So you haven't told them I'm gay. Well we're I mean you're gay. You okay. didn't just come out All here. Right. You okay. came out in 2011. Okay. I want to talk about that too. This just we skipped end. to the end of my outline, so I didn't. You know, we skipped over <laughs> well, you're gay. Kind of part of the story. <laughs> Fair enough. That's why we're doing this together.
1: <laughs> uh, so we we did have a situation. They called it the bathroom bill in North Carolina, where you know, in response to the city of Charlotte passing some very progressive LGBTQ legislation. The state of North Carolina took away the ability of cities to do that and actually imposed uh, this bathroom bill where everyone was required to use the the bathroom that it You know, was there assigned gender at birth? And uh, it put us in a real spot because the team there, owned by Michael Jordan, had done everything right in the community. We were all rooting for a great all-star there, but did it mesh with our kind of beliefs? And so we were really torn. And we have a board of governors meeting. It was actually in Las Vegas, I remember. And Adam Silver, the commissioner, came over before the meeting and said— we're gonna have this conversation, but I want you to have the last word in the conversation. Okay, so you know.
0: At this point, you're at the you're at the Warriors. You're, you're yeah. yeah you're not, I'm not at the Warriors the, yeah, yeah. at this time.
1: So we're you know people are talking about how how important this would be to North Carolina, to our Charlotte franchise torn by, you know, what we stand for as a league, and, and then Adam called on me, and I could, you know, what I could say to him is in kind of this role that I have played since 2011, I'm in a position where people, you know, will reach out to me who are struggling with being gay or whatever in their organizations and aren't ready to t- take that step or aren't confident enough that they can do it and still be successful in their jobs. Uh, you know, men, men's sports is kind of still... Way behind where our society is on that, so I could, you know, just say to the owners very simply, like I'm. When you make this vote, when you make this decision, I just want you to think of the people who work for you, because I'm in touch with a lot of people on a lot of teams who aren't don't feel like in your organization they're in a position to come to work with their authentic self, and I just want you to think about them when you when you vote and. Uh, you know, the the owners voted not to play the game there. We ended up a couple years later going back when North Carolina uh, rescinded that bill. And we actually made that All-Star Weekend kind of a celebration of, of diversity. It was really a, a really good outcome. But, it, you know, it's one of those things, positions I never thought I would be in.
0: I, I like what you – I think you said it at the time. Maybe someone said it about your – what you had said to the owners was – there's always this argument, like it's a slippery slope, but we're going to take a position on everything. And what you said was, or again, somebody said, um, was, look, no, you, 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 it, it's too hard to, to to test everything that you do, everything you say against every standard that you possibly could have. But when you have your spots that you can pick, you should pick them. I agree. And I, I agree.
1: Well, and it's getting more complicated.
0: Yeah, it is getting the more
1: complicated atmosphere we have now.
0: let So, 2011, you came out as a gay man. It was on the front page. It's just in. Yeah, you sorry, I'm going back now. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> it was on the front page of the New York Times. Big news. I remember it. Um, and you just you just used the phrase that I was going to ask you about, which is being your authentic self. You said in your Hall of Fame induction speech, most important thing you ever did was merging your public and your private lives. And you then went to the Warriors. You spent 10 years there. Pretty successful 10 years. Three championships. You built the Chase Center. Um, what was it like? I mean, was it – you were already a pretty successful guy, like – how did it feel? like how did it feel to be your authentic self in that job? Why does that make a difference?
1: Well, for me, uh I knew I was gay at a really young age. I knew I was different um figured out that that meant I was gay uh but I could never reconcile it with my love for sports and my desire to be a part of that industry. You know, I never saw anybody. There was nobody out there that I could say, "Wow, that worked out." pretty well for them. And that, w- that was a real impediment to me. It's, it's, I, I, I wasn't any different at work than I was at home, but I put barriers around myself about what I talked about, and people kind of honored that by not asking me anything. Like, I was never asked my entire career if I was gay. Now, people, some people had to know I was. I mean, you know, you got gaydar. You can tell sometimes, right? Um, so, uh, uh, But I never got asked, so I... I You know, I had reached a point in my life, I uh, had a very tough personal loss. I lost a 17-year partner to AIDS in New York City in 1994, and had to go through that completely privately away from my work life, which was I wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, I had a 14-year relationship that was kind of on the rocks. I'm in Phoenix now, uh, because I can't bring the most important person in my life into my work environment. Think about that in your life. My dad had passed away. My mom had been diagnosed with lung cancer. And it was kind of for me, like, okay, like, this is it. This is my time. Like, I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know if this was a big thing or a little thing. I I sought out a really wonderful guy in the media business in New York City named uh, Dan Cloris, had a huge PR firm there, and asked him to go to dinner uh, with me. And it seems going to look great in a movie. Snowy night, Upper East Side, table in the window. It's like, Dan, Like uh, here's my story. Like I, I can just talk to the people I work with, and it could be uh, great. Um, or if there's something more that could be accomplished here, I just can't put it in perspective. And he looked across the table at me and goes, Ricky? He still calls me Ricky? He goes, if you want to do this, number one, I want to help. And number two, I think it's page A1, New York Times, which... I describe it as my oh shit moment. Like this is not exactly what I thought I was signing up for. But uh, he paired me up with a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, still writes the New York Times, named Dan Barry. Dan flew out to Phoenix, and you know he was great. He's like, you know, you're, you know, you've done a really good job, but nobody knows who you are. Like, but the people you've befriended over your career who know you, uh, every sports fan knows them, and if they would tell your story. Uh, it'd be much more impactful. So I got an airplane and f- flew up to Mercer Island, flew up to Seattle, drove over to Mercer Island. You know, you reference Bill Russell, knocked on the door. Big door opens, this giant of a guy with a Celtics hat is standing there. My stomach's like in a knot, like, okay, hey. So we go sit in his study. Um, between us is a picture of the president uh, with Barack Obama saying to Bill, my inspiration. You know, nothing intimidating about the setting <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> It's like, Bill, like, here's my deal. Uh, I want to ask you to do the one thing you hate doing more than anything else in the world, which is talking to a reporter. And he was like, "30 seconds of, "Yeah, of course, you know." And then two hours of like just laughing and talking about old times, and repeated that with our two-time MVP at Phoenix, Steve Nash, David Stern, Val Ackerman, others. And uh, you know, I was blessed) uh, in May of 2011 with what turned out to be a front page story uh, in the New York Times, beautifully written, and changed everything. Um, I didn't know how. I was prepared, I think, for 80% really positive, 10% really negative, some in between. Um, I still keep on my shelf binders, uh, people who took the time to find me, thousands of emails, and I, I keep them, and once in a while, open them up and read them. It, does, it sounds like I'm making this up. I swear to God, I'm not. Out of all the people who found a way to get in touch with me, I did not receive one negative response, which to me kind of blew my mind. So, but it was, it was different. Um, it was, I'd, I'd done kind of everything I could do at the Suns at that point, and got introduced to these new owners of the Warriors. And I remember going to the interview in Atherton uh, to talk to Joe Lacom and Peter Goober. I remember sitting there uh, or on the way in the car there going like, this will be the first time in my life that I've ever gone through a job interview where everybody knows my story. Like, I don't know how that's going to be. And we sat down in Joe's living room and we're talking for probably 30 minutes before one of them said, oh yeah, like that New York Times story, how'd that work out for you? So I said, okay, I could work for these guys, all right? That was, you know, and the fact that they would hire, you know, an openly gay president for their prized franchise uh, said a lot about the culture there. And I got to tell you, from the players to the coaching staff, you know, my husband was as much a part of our owner's room as anybody else. Our players, you know, high-five Todd on the way out to the court. Like, it's been an amazing, amazing
0: experience. Thanks for that. Um, uh, When you got to the Warriors, well, something that I, I I don't know, I think is, I I sort of think it's really hard to change culture, really hard. Like once a culture is kind of in a place, like it's to, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to root that, root it out if it's not good. When you went to the Warriors, you said, we're going to rejoin the NBA. What did you mean and how did you, what did you do?
1: So um, anybody who had been involved in the NBA had looked at the Warriors franchise for 20 20 years and said, oh, my God, like if you could ever get this in the right ownership management hands, this should stand toe-to-toe with any franchise in any sport, right? The market that we live in, the crazy fan support for a team that hasn't made the playoffs in 16 out of 17 years in a league where half the teams make the playoffs every year. That's impossible to design that plan uh, and execute it. Uh, and the corporate um, support, you know, the companies that are or the companies that are in our area, like are charting the future of the world, including the one who's here today. Uh, at, you know, if you're a 20-something interested in the world around you and a great basketball player, who wouldn't want to be in that environment? So, I'll never forget my first day um, at work. I brought all the staff into the off into a conference room and said, like, here's the deal. Here's here's what this can be. And um, you know, it was like an invitation for everybody to jump on board. You can be on this train. Some of you have been here a long time, maybe don't believe we can really do it, probably time for us to talk about uh, a graceful exit. And that first year, we probably turned over a third of the staff. Um, And I was able, but a couple things, we had some real gems that hadn't been in a position of responsibility there. And I was able to elevate them, who were very well liked by their peers, um, to areas of much more responsibility, which was great. Fill in the gaps. I had a great recruiting story with the expertise we didn't have. And the same time this was going on, we had Mark Jackson as our coach, who changed, you know, we had a culture of losing. In the business office, you just expected to lose. Pretty good gig seasons, your year's over April 15th every year, you get a long summer vacation, you get a raise, come back, you do it all over again. Players basically had the same attitude, took the court every night expecting to lose that's what the Warriors did and Mark Jackson came in and really changed the mindset of the players at the same time I was trying to change the mindset of the team and we started having some success, we started having some business success and we started winning some games and we ended up going to the playoffs and that success just started to feed you know, off itself. And you really could just feel this momentum growing. Um, and we made some hard decisions. We fired Mark Jackson after he got us to the playoffs, something that the Warriors weren't very accustomed to. And we replaced him with Steve Kerr. Now, let me give you that setup. So let's see. Mark Jackson was a player who was, became a broadcaster who never coached a game before. Now, you're firing him. You're going to hire Steve Kerr, who is a player and now a broadcaster who's never coached the game before and expect a different outcome. But Steve was our general manager in Phoenix, and I knew what we were getting as a human being. And, um, you know, his first year, um, he went to Andre Godal, a perpetual uh, all-star, started every game he ever played and said, I think the best role for you to help the team would be to come off the bench. And then he held his breath. And Andre said, okay. And that, in the locker room, changed everything. If Andre Iguodala was willing to make that sacrifice for the good of the team, who am I to not do whatever it is that adds to the value I I give to our team? And, you know... Andre Godala ended up being the MVP of the NBA Finals that year when the Warriors won the championship in 2015. What came out of the locker room, which became the mantra for our whole organization, and it wasn't the marketing slogan.
0: Strength in numbers. Strength
1: in numbers. And what that meant was that everybody knew their role, and everybody knew that collectively the belief was, unless you did your job well we weren't gonna to get to the ultimate place we wanted to get. Everybody had to accept their role, understand how it fit in, and be great with it. All right, And that's what we tried to cultivate in the business organization culturally, um, and that's why the Warriors teams have been
0: so successful. And you preach no silos on the business side. I think you're also telling us a story about how the success on the sports and the business side radiate back and forth to each other. People take pride in the organization. It's it's an unbelievable decade. Uh, not surprising that the, the Warriors were named franchise of the decade in all sports I mean for that it's 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 unbelievable i don't want to lose sight of the future so we heard lauren our colleague lauren Wheatman gave a gave a talk this morning on taylor swift and economics of taylor swift i have a feeling it rhymes with how you see the future of sports over the next 10 15 years and maybe talk about that talk about the NWSL team, how you see that fitting in, why you decided you could do a lot of things. You're talking with us, which is amazing. You're also spending all your, you know, a lot of your time on this, uh, on this soccer team of ours, which is an unbelievable boon for, for us and the team in the region. W- why that?
1: Well, um, you know, I don't think I knew who Sixth Street was six months ago. And then I got this cold call from this guy, Alan Wexman. Have you heard of him? Started describing uh, quite enthusiastically, I might say, uh, this opportunity. Oh, oh, Alan.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, and and we did a we did a Zoom. We got together in person um, and clicked uh, on a lot of different levels. And what I what it gives me, and I'm so excited for you guys. You're going to have a amazing team to root for. Uh, it, it's a perfect intersection of you know I I was there when we launched the WNBA. I know why women's sports is so important. WNBA is the longest uh, standing professional women's sports league anywhere. And uh, what's happening in women's sports right now, we're at, we're at a completely unique place we have never seen before, okay? Where, you know, the women's Final Four in basketball is the highest rated Final Four ever. The men's Final Four, the lowest rated Final Four ever, right? The trajectory is amazing. And it, it so this combines, my love and belief that women's sports is really important with building great team organizations and hopefully at some level, even helping the league be successful. So it's a perfect intersection. And I gotta tell you, everybody I've met from Sixth Street, like uh, this morning session to see, or culture, to see the process that you go through, um, it 's incredibly impressive to somebody from the outside looking in and i 'm kind of excited to be on the inside looking out a little bit
0: we are too yeah. if, think of, if you think about away, and away from the soccer team necessarily, but sort of like where you see sports going whether yeah. it 's yeah like where should we be thinking about allocating dollars our investors dollars
1: yeah wow so um you know uh, Live game distribution is going to be the biggest question mark out there. We're, we're about to see a huge shift in how people are consuming live sports. The great thing about it when you're on the, the content side is a, a lot of companies are going to live and die and, and be successful and fail by how they figure out how to get content. We have the content everybody wants. Live sports, nothing drives viewership in numbers, the way live sports drives viewership in numbers. We got that going for us. But how we figure that out, how we figure out the old model of regional sports networks and network television is dying. Okay, The new model of direct-to-consumer is emerging, but we haven't figured out how to monetize it in a way that's comparable to our old system yet. So a lot of disruption, a lot of opportunity, um, and a lot of opportunity to know our customers much better. Right? The the beautiful thing about not giving your product away to a third-party distributor is you have potentially a direct connection with your customer, and you can know everything about your customer, and you can know everything they're interested in. You can satisfy needs that you can't possibly satisfy right now uh, in our current system. I think that's the biggest question mark here. The, the future is amazing. There's nothing about you know, I, I read the. Sixth Street might have paid $53 million for this franchise. I don't know if that's
0: true, but. Can't believe everything you read in the press, but we'll confirm. I think Alan you know. could have
1: bought the entire league for that about five years ago. Uh, and But what's happening, there's, show me an example where sports franchise valuations have gone the other way. They don't, they go up. Um, and the question is can we build, a, a, you know, a 2024 organization that has, you know, an approach to everything that's focused on the future as opposed to we're not burdened by any of the historical past uh, with our franchise. So um, I, I think that's going to be important. I, you know, there's a lot of challenges, um, uh, social media, our players now are their own brands. They can go direct to our, direct to our, our fans without, you know, needing the team to be the intermediary to, to tell their stories. That presents opportunities and challenges. But um, I have I, never been more optimistic. I, if you're going to invest, I'd invest in soccer and basketball. Those are the two sports worldwide that are, that are over the next 20 years going to uh, own the world. It's not going to be baseball. It's not going to be American football. You can't retrofit that to the rest of the world. Uh, America is discovering soccer in a way they've never discovered it before. The Women's World Cup is going to be awesome. Yeah. For us. Um uh, so I, I've never been more excited or optimistic and, and we're gonna we're gonna build something great in the Bay Area around women's soccer.
0: We agree. We definitely agree. What are you reading? What do you what what are your reading habits? How do you how do you stay smart? What do you what do you like to do?
1: I am a voracious uh newsreader more than anything else. I d can't start my day without New York Times, Wall Street Journal, still reading the San Francisco Chronicle, sports business journal, Sportico. Um, and then I can have my second cup of coffee. Seriously, that's how I spend my first 90 minutes of the day. I wanna know, I'm sending you or Alan a story I just saw about, uh, by the way, did you see where uh, today, What's today? Tuesday? Yesterday, Arsenal had 60,000 fans in attendance for their women's, basque, women's foot, soccer game. I can't remember what sport we are. Their women's soccer team, 60,000 people at the Emirates yesterday for Arsenal. Uh, and I had to send that to you yesterday morning because it's the most exciting thing that I saw. Um, That's great. So that I, I love reading business books. I'm a business book geek. I just read uh, uh, Bob Iger's book again, and uh, you know, so I love reading business books. But I'm I'm really like more a news junkie than anything else.
0: This is delightful. I have a million more questions and things to talk about, but luckily you're here, so people should spend time with you. I'm going to just read something you said in your Hall of Fame speech about the unique power of sports to bring people together, to be a source of pride, inspiration, and connection in communities everywhere. Not a bad thing to spend your career on, and we thank you for it, and we're so happy that you're spending time with us, and thanks for this. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of 6th Street, and 6th Street is not providing any investing, financial, economic, legal accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details.